Thank you, Trent. Thanks, Taylor and Zach, for leading us in, in worship. Um, you guys can be seated. We are just plugging along in the book of Ephesians. This is our third gathering. We're still in chapter one, but we're moving at a, at a pretty good pace. Uh, before we jump into this text, let me, let me pray for us. Our Father, uh, it is good to pray, to praise, to pray, which is what we've been doing. It's what Paul does in this letter. He begins by offering up a blessing, but he begins by praising you. And that praise is followed by prayer. We want to be marked as a people, uh, we want to be a people marked by those two things as well. And so we ask, um, we ask for your spirit. We ask for your grace. We ask for your help as we try to understand your word. And we, we recognize that apart from your spirit, nothing really happens to us. We may learn something interesting, but we're not changed. We need you to, to be changed. And we want to be changed, to be made more in the image of your son, Jesus. And so we ask that our time together would be to that end for your glory, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so when, uh, when I was in seventh grade, my family moved from the Midwest to South Texas, San Antonio, and it was a, it was a different culture. Seventh grade is just kind of a tough time to move. In general, and so what we did as a family, we, we bought a tent, and we uh, began camping, exploring Texas state parks. And our first venture was to Seminole Canyon, right on the border of Mexico. And it's basically the desert. And we we uh, pitched our tent. We spent the night. We were very green and all of this. And we get up the next morning, and my dad and my brother and I excitedly hit the trail there in the desert. And we start walking and kind of just wandering. We, we, we're on a trail, and then we decide to kind of veer off the trail. Um, and we just keep walking. We keep walking. And I don't know if you know this. This was April. But it can get really hot in the desert. <laughs> that may be kind of obvious. Not only that, but the temperature swings are, like, incredible. Because we left, and we, it was kind of cold. But it was unseasonably hot on this day in April. Was, the temperature climbed well into the hundreds. And after about eight hours <laughs> of wonder, another thing we forgot is as far as you go from one point, you have to come back. <laughs> that didn't dawn on us until we were about four hours in. Um, and, and we did not have the food we needed. We did not have the water. We were... I. I I saw, we all kind of panicked a little bit. I thought that I was not going to make it. <laughs> but I did, and I'm here to tell the tale. Um, but, you know, as I reflect on that experience, two things I think went wrong. One, we didn't know where we were going. Okay, that was a big problem. And two, we did not have the means to get us there, wherever there is. We didn't know where we were going, we didn't have the proper means to get us there. We didn't have enough water. We didn't have a lunch. We didn't really have any food that we packed. 
And if you're in the desert for eight hours and it's 100 degrees, that's, that's like a recipe for disaster. And my dad would quickly tell you that it was the blind leading the blind on this trip. Now, I believe that our own culture is confused on the two things that we were confused about. Like, as a culture, we don't really know where we're going. And we certainly don't know how to get there, by what means we get there. There's a, uh, the Talking Heads band, um, David Byrne is the, is the lead on, in that band. He's come out with a Broadway musical called American Utopia. And in that song, or in that musical, he's got, he's got one of his songs, is On the Road to Nowhere. And it's, live, it's a lively, upbeat song, but the content is actually pretty despairing. We're on the road to nowhere. And in fact, in the middle of the song, he starts, he's like throwing out cattle instructions, like head them up, move them out, and making little cattle whoops. Like we're on the road to nowhere, and we're actually like a bunch of cattle that are just sort of trotting obliviously to their slaughter. Like that's where it all ends for us, just death. We're on the road to nowhere. Now, that's, that's a problem. Um, and, and the reason why we feel as though we're on the road to nowhere is because something we said last week, right? Paul begins this praise, and, and he says that in Christ, our lives begin with God. We were created for his glory. And, 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 and not only do they begin with God, that he foreordained and predestined us from, the foundation, from before the foundation of the earth to be his, but our lives are to be lived for God, to the praise of his glorious grace. It begins and ends with God. But our own culture is the, is, the, is the opposite, right? It begins with us. We're all that there is. And the purpose of our lives is to figure out how to best serve us, individual, the self, right? And that is problematic. That is not in tune with the way, of the, with, with the way God has designed the world, it's not what Christianity teaches us. And what Paul prays in this prayer that we just read is that we would know where we are going and that we would know how we get there. The two things we're, we're, we seem to be confused on. And um, it's significant because Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus. And you think about that. Like, how do we, we want to be a community that prays for one another. How do we pray for one another? The church at Ephesus is dealing with some pretty serious struggles. I mean, the early church was persecuted. They were not liked by Jews. They were not liked by Gentiles. They were under all sorts of scrutiny. We know that the church at Ephesus was, um, because of the, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, in Acts chapter 19, it's described that Christians from the church at Ephesus, are, they're dragged out into the streets and they're in the center of this mob riot that's mad at Christians for causing a downturn in the cell of idols in Ephesus. Okay, so I mean, they're getting, they're getting persecuted. Christians are dying throughout the empire. Not only that, but like any church, inevitably members of the church at Ephesus are sick. They have, um, they've no doubt experienced death within their community. So what do you, how do you pray for a church that's undergoing all of these difficulties that, that, we, that every church faces? Well, Paul's prayer is, is actually pretty simple. He prays that they would know. 
He prays that they would know where they're going and how they're going to get there. The two things that my brother and I did not know on that day in the desert and our culture seems to be confused on. So let's jump right in. Verse 15, Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith, this is the reason, right? It's because of their faith in Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Now, did you, do you see this? What he said, what he's, what he's happy about for the church at Ephesus? They've got the two things that we said are key for the, for the church, to see the power of God unleashed. Faith in the Lord Jesus, they got their gospel doctrine, but they've also got love for the saints. They've got gospel culture as well. And consequently, the, the power of God is at work in the church at Ephesus. And Paul is grateful that that's the case. Their faith and their love. And so he's, and, and so verse 15 or 16, he's not, he does, says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, this is verse 17, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. Put simply, Paul's prayer is that they would know Jesus. That they would know Jesus. And he expects it to be a supernatural work of the Spirit. I don't know, you may have different translations. The ESV says the Spirit, right? Referring to the, the Holy Spirit. The, the third person of the Trinity. Um, in other words, Paul is, or, yeah, Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would impress upon the church at Ephesus wisdom and revelation of what God has done in their lives so that they would have knowledge that the eyes of their heart, verse 18, would be enlightened. And then he begins to kind of get more particular that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to know three things. So it's knowledge, knowledge of Christ, and then we've got hope, their inheritance, and the power that's at work within them. So uh, these things are going to answer this question of of where we're going and how we're going to get there as a church, as the body of Christ, as King's Cross Church. So let's, let's get into the particulars here. Okay, that you, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Okay, that's the first thing, the hope to which he's called you. Now, Paul does not uh, explain much of this. uh, He doesn't really explain anything here. And the verses that precede it, um, we know that we've been called to holiness, to blamelessness, that we would not, that we'd be blameless, that we would be uh, children of God, sons of God, redeemed, that we would be the redeemed. Like, this is what our calling is. Um, But he, he wants them to have certainty about where all this calling is going for them. The word hope in the New Testament, the Greek word is elpis, uh, and it's, it's slightly different than our word hope. I'll give you an example. When I was younger, for whatever reason, I had this thing. I, I liked horses. I liked to ride horses. I thought it would be so cool to have a horse and be able to just ride that thing wherever I wanted to go. 
But the problem for us was that we lived in a very suburban set. It was just not even, it wasn't even close to being practical for our family to ever have a horse. But nonetheless, I would, I would hope for a horse. I could use that language. I hope that I could get a horse someday. You wouldn't say that with the Greek word elpis, because there's, for us, hope kind of carries with it almost like a wishful thinking. Like it's a, this little fragile thing that, oh, I hope for world peace, or I hope that we could just, you know, you know I, I hope I could go to Disneyland this week. That would be great. Well, it's not going to happen. The word hope for them had more certainty. There, there's ancient letters that say something like this, like a, a, stu, a, a, a child is writing to his parent and says, I hope that I get sick, which doesn't make any sense to us. Why would you hope that you get sick? It's another, another way to say it is, I am certain that I will get sick. And when Paul says the word elpis, hope, to which you've been called, he says, I want you to know the certainty of what God is doing in your life, that he is going to bring all of this stuff to, to completion, to fruition. Okay, but that's not the only thing. Next, what are the riches? This is again, again, verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Right? If, if, uh, if you got a letter from a long-lost not, not even a letter from the, from the uncle. Let's say the letter came from a lawyer. And you open it up and it says, Dear so-and-so, you have, your, your uncle has passed away and he has uh, given you as your inheritance $5 million. And just, just came out of nowhere. That would change your day, wouldn't it? Amen. I mean, that, <laughs> that would bring about quite the, uh, the change in outlook. And what Paul says is, you need to know the inheritance that awaits you. It's so much better than $5 million. Because $5 million, you can't take with you beyond the grave. $5 million can only buy things that are defiled, that perish, and that fade with time. But your inheritance, uh, as Peter says in, in, in uh, 1 Peter, is undefiled, imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven, preserved in perfection for you. For you. Now, Notice that there's not a whole lot of explanation for these things that Paul, for the hope to which they've been called, right? We're moving towards, hope is something that stands ahead of us, right? We're moving towards unification with Christ. We're moving towards kind of a full adoption where we, we are, our, our sonship in Christ is fully realized. We're moving towards all these things that lie ahead of us. So Paul prays that we would know that where we're going in that regard. He prays that we would know the glorious inheritance that we've not obtained yet. Like, it's not ours yet. It lay ahead. Um, the third thing he prays is that we would know how we're going to get there. And that's what we see here in this, in this remainder. Oh, and this is what I was going to say. These two things right here, he doesn't explain them. Because for Paul... He, he's, he's relying upon the Spirit of God to awaken us to them. Um, because only the Spirit of God can do that. We don't know fully the hope to which we've been called. We don't know the glorious inheritance that awaits us. It's sort of like if you've ever been to it on a trip where you didn't know where you were going, 
Uh, you can say you're going to Europe for the first time, and you've got an idea of what Europe is like, but you, you're going to imagine the trip a certain way, and then you get over there, and it's going to defy how you imagined it because you've never been there. How could you possibly know? Paul is saying, look, the Spirit of God has to make these things known to, to you because you don't, you don't have an experience, you don't have a backdrop to understand these things fully. Okay, so how are we going to get there, though? How are we going to get to these glorious things and this hope to which we've been called? Well, it's the third thing that Paul prays for here. His power, the immeasurable, can't be measured, greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Okay? Um, Let's keep going. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Okay? Um, Paul says, you've got, you've got a power at work within you. Tomorrow, um, I'm, going to, I'm actually going to um, a church in Birmingham, Alabama, to visit with other church planters. So that's going to require me to get on an airplane. And whenever I get on an airplane, I'm, I, you know, as many times as I've been on an airplane... It, it's so amazing to me, the power of that airplane, to be able to actually get itself this heavy thing filled with people to get it off the runway, up in the air, over and over all the day long, and stay up there for as long as it needs to, to get to the destination. That's power, right? Um, we have incredible power with medical technology. There's medical technologies that can help sustain lives and help hearts that that aren't working well or limbs that aren't working well. There is power all around us at work, but there's no power that can bring back the dead that we've created at least. God's power can, and Jesus is, is an example of that. And Paul says, resurrection power is at work within you. The same power that created the world is, is at work in you, and this power that's recreating the world is at work within you, church. And look, not only did it raise Jesus from the dead, verse 20, it also seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. So this power of God took Jesus from being at like the lowest point in human existence Right, being wrongfully accused of crimes you didn't commit, and then enduring the shame of the cross, which was an excruciating death. But not only that, it was intended to bring about shame in the person. It was intended to strip the humanity from the person crucified. I mean, they didn't have any clothes on. It was, it would, there was a, it was a mockery of the person. Um, the whole thing was intended to just make the person feel subhuman. So God came into the flesh and was brought down to that point. And then the power of God raises him up from the tomb. And not only that, raises and exalts him to reign over all things. To put all things under his feet. The feet that were nailed to the cross now have everything in submission to him. And he's bringing all things together. Think about this. 
Because of the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, the dust of earth is on the throne of heaven right now. Like the, the unification of all things, of heaven and earth, is already begun um, in heaven. And Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning of, over all things. Okay, so, so that power is at work within us. But then look, let's keep going. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. The church is his body, verse 23. The church is the fullness of, of him, of Christ, who fills all in all. So, again, Paul's prayer for knowledge, where we're going, the hope, the inheritance that awaits us, the power of God that's going to get us there. I have question marks here. There's a third thing that Paul says that's remarkable in this passage about where we're going, and it's there at the very end. God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. The church is his body. The church is the fullness. The church somehow completes Christ in his rule over all things. So where are we going as a church? We're going to rule and reign over the whole universe with Christ. That's an incredible thought. And it's actually what we were made for. Um, when God created uh, the world, he created uh, people in his image. And the, word, the Hebrew word used for image is Salem, which really means, it literally means idol. It's the same word used for idol. So we are God's idols on earth. We, are his his, uh, we represent him on earth in the sense that we are to be his stewards, his, his uh, regents on earth to steward his lordship and his dominion over all the earth. And that's what Genesis 1 says, that, um, that we have been created to fill and subdue and have dominion over the earth. Now, we hear, we hear that word dominion, and we automatically think, oh, sounds it, po postmodern man, woman, does not like the word dominion. We equate it with abuse. Um, but that's not it, Right? What God has called us to is a loving stewarding of his creation and the extension of his creation, um, the extension of his work of organizing order out of chaos throughout the, throughout the earth and beyond, even into the universe. Um, it's, it's, that, that was kind of our original call, right? Let, let me try to illustrate this. The Lion, I don't know if you saw The Lion King, the actual movie that just came out over the summer. It's pretty good. Anybody? Raise of hands. Lots of kids out there saw it. Well, I don't remember the dad's name, uh, the lion. A little help? Mufasa. Mufasa. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say, but I wasn't positive. Okay, Mufasa is a king, and he's a great king. And he's, he's teaching his son Simba about leadership and kingship. And, and he, what he says is... It, it's, it's not about you. you you're, it's a role of service, right? And as long as Mufasa is serving the lion land, things are well. But then Scar, 
for selfish reasons, assumes charge of the area. And what happens to the area? It gets, I mean, it just dies. The whole ecosystem just sort of dies, and everybody's starving and hungry, and the land is a wasteland, right? Because it has a bad lord. It has a bad king. And so that's kind of what the world is, is, is about. We rejected God's lordship o- over us, and as a result, all of creation has experienced Sin has entered the world, and creation is, is sort of unraveling. Um, but what God has done is he sent a king who was primarily not about himself, but about serving others, Jesus the Christ, to institute a new kingdom. But here's the thing. He's inviting his rebellious, self-seeking uh, re- rebels back into his favor, and he's creating one people out of many, called the church, and he's inviting them to fulfill the very thing that they were created to do, to rule and reign over his creation. Psalm 8 says, what is man that you're, that you're mindful of him? And the answer is, well, God created him to rule and to reign over all things, that he has dominion over the world. And if you want to experience what you were created to be, the church is the inroad to that, right? That's what Paul is saying. That's our goal. That's where we're heading, is to the rule and reign of all, of all the cosmos, all the creation, with Christ, co-reigning with Christ over all of creation. Okay. And this is just the beginning of what Paul has for the church. Um he began with a blessing, with praise, and then this is a prayer. And he's, sort of, he's also setting kind of the rhythm for the church as well in this first chapter. We praise God. It's what we've done since we've been here. We praise God. We pray. We praise. We pray. Um, and so with, with that, um, I'm going to pose. We've, been, we've made it basically through one chapter of Ephesians. Does, uh, does anyone have... Any questions about anything we've covered so far? It's a lot to take in. Yeah, what's that? Where we're going? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, in some ways, um, what, you know, the whole New Testament is trying to explain these things, the hope to which we've been called, the inheritance, and even the Old Testament, I mean, all of Scripture. It takes all of that to round out the answers on these things. But more immediately in the text... I think what Paul is, is asking for, I mean, we, it, we've, um, it, it's some of the things that were mentioned in that first chapter. We're holy, we're blameless, we're children of God, Paul mentioned those. In chapter 2, he's going to talk about the unification of Jew and Gentile. So the hostility that exists between these two groups is no more. 
And that's what Christ says. He unif- the hope, one hope is unification, right, with uh, family, with um, other races, other demographics, other cultures. So I think he doesn't, you're right, he doesn't explain it much in that, te- in that prayer, which I think highlights kind of the point of the prayer is that what Paul wants us to get by the power of the Spirit is like the taste of these things in our mouth, right? The, that we would actually, that it would drop down to a, le- a level that, that, that surpasses um, just an intellectual understanding of what the promises are. That they would actually drive and energize us. Here, here's one way to think about it. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, talks about the thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was. Um, maybe migraine headaches, some people have said. That's likely. Um, but whatever it was, there was this thing that bothered him throughout his ministry. And in, in that chapter, in 2 Corinthians 11, he says that God gave him this thorn. This is the thing that's more interesting than the actual thorn. God gave him this thorn in the flesh to keep him from being too elated at the promises of God that had been revealed to him. Because this is what he explains. He says that he, whether it was like embodied or in a vision, this is all in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. Whether it was embodied or whether it was a vision that he had in his sleep, he was swept up into the, into the heaven, in, into the heavens, into the very presence of Christ. The, the ascended Christ. And what he saw there transformed him so much that when he came back down to earth, he couldn't function properly as a result of the glory that he saw in heaven. And so he, he said that the thorn in the flesh was given to him to keep him from being too overwhelmed, excited about the revelations that have been revealed. I mean, one, one way to think about it is like, you know what, like, a newly married couple is like. They're just so, like, you know, it's like, hello, there's other people around. Like, we're here. You, you can't live that way forever, right? So Paul's had this kind of experience with God. Like, he, he needs to do the work of ministry, and so God gives him, like, a little jab of pain to sort of keep him grounded in the world. So I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say, Jeff, is that I think the reason, what Paul's desire is, is that the, the, the reality of these things that are ours would be made known to us in the spirit. And it goes far beyond like an intellectual understanding of it. I don't know if that helps. It's kind of long-winded, but. Okay, Dave. Right. Yeah. Yes, certainly. Um, so the question is, the if we're called to, I'm doing this for the recording. If we're called to serve, how how does that comport with the rule and reign that Paul envisions here for the church? Well, I think the answer is our lives follow the trajectory. Jesus's life, right? That he came to serve, 
um, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And Jesus told us to take up our cross, crosses and follow him. And Paul says if we suffer with him, then we'll also be glorified with him. That our, our lives are intended to be um, lived in service to others and in love to others. But the, but the eventual promise, just as Christ was raised from the dead and uh, raised up to the right hand of the Father, that we too, having lived a life of service, will be raised up to new life and to a rule and reign over all things. So that's the, that's the, that's the hope, right? That's where we're going. But to get there, it looks like a life of service. Because really, that's what kingship is. That's how things work in God's economy. You pour out yourself. In this world, you get kind of burned when you do that. But anyway, there's probably a lot more to say there. Um, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Any, any other questions, comments, thoughts, rebuttals, rebukes, hilarious rejoinders? Anything? Okay. Let me pray again, and then I'm going to invite uh, Mr. Capicelli up to help, help us with our next phase. Father, we give you thanks that your word uh, communicates to us such hard-to-believe things that uh, Jesus, his, his love towards us, his, your plan for us, your sending of him and the Spirit's, the Spirit's work and arrival among us is um, producing things of which we can only barely understand and imagine. But we pray that you would, you would make them known to us, help us understand the hope to which we've been called, the glorious inheritance that awaits us, and the power that's at work within us, the resurrection, recreative power of, of you. We pray uh, these things in Jesus' name. Amen.